This is No Politics at the Dinner Table. I'm Tony Biancasino. And I'm Amit Prakash. Today we have on Corey Stern, who is the chief counsel of 2,600 lead-poisoned children in Flint who have sued the state of Michigan. Yeah, you guys might have uh, seen the New York Times article where there was a $600 million settlement coming. So uh, let's hear ways to say if anything more is coming. So I kind of love it here, but I I'm, I could have ended up in Kuwait and I would have been like, oh, this is fucking awesome. I love Kuwait. As long as I'm with kind of my wife and kids and I can run a little bit every day and do my work, I don't really care where I am. Yeah, I think I think New York does that to you, too. I mean, I was there for a pretty long time, um, but I'm the same way. I travel so much for work. I'm, I'm in like these I'm in like Columbus, Ohio. I'm like, dude. We yeah, need to live, live here. Columbus. Like, I'll right. take this place over. Yeah. Um, you find one good bar and you're like, I, that's all I need. Yeah. I'm good. I could go here every day. Every day. Yeah. Um, but there is, you know, I mean, there's aspects of New York you can never replace. And that's what makes New York special. But, you know, I just think for some people like myself, there's just an expiration date where I just want a lot of yeah. space. I do want to yeah. be able to just have some grass outside. And yeah. I like that life. For me, and that's cool, what I want right now. And the cool thing for me is, at some point, this pandemic will end. I mean, oh, it'll yeah. either end because we do the right things or it'll end because we screwed it up so bad. It's just going to, you know, whatever. But I'm, you know, I, I get to go to the city. You know, I, yeah. I, I'm going to go in, you know, five days a week. And um, my therapist is in Brooklyn. I need a therapist, but I'm yeah. going to go there once a week. Absolutely. And, you know, I've sort of the deal I made, I think, before moving here was like, I still want to be able to do that. And I imagine a scenario where I could still have dinner and drinks with my friends, you know, once a week or once mm-hmm. every two weeks. Mm-hmm. And frankly, a lot of people our age and people that we all knew when we were there, they're leaving, too, or they left. Like, it's a very weird, um, which is which is kind of cool. I think I think it'll all come back and I think it'll be a whole new generation of like, you know, Brooklynites and city folks. Mm-hmm. And I think it'll I'm I'm kind of excited to see the personality that it takes on that's different from the one that it had when I was, you know, more of a part of the fabric. Yeah. All right. So let's uh, talk a little bit about um, your lawyering lately. Uh, so uh, there's been for those who you know, who have not been following this and I, we, our listeners and society at large can be forgiven for not following slow moving social and environmental crises uh, because they are often not reported that much. The climate crisis being the biggest one, but the Flint water crisis uh, is a key one that should be at the forefront of our minds and in, and in the media landscape, but unfortunately it's not. Recently, it's back in the news. Um, just a very quick thing for those who may have forgotten. In 2014, this uh, water crisis unfolded, and, and now we're in 2020, so this is a six-year thing for 18 months. Um, as a cost-cutting measure, uh, an, an emergency manager switched the water um, from Lake Huron to the Flint River, um, and as a result, thousands of people were harmed um, at least a dozen people died of a lesionnaire's disease outbreak. Um, you know, skin lesions, hair loss, perhaps learning disabilities in children, et cetera. You know, just, just, a, just a massive um, social consequence to uh, a financial maneuver that actually backfired. Even, even They didn't even get away with that. Um, but uh, Corey Stern is with us today. Um, and we had him on before when, when he was representing... Uh, 
Um, was it like 2,600 kids, Corey? Is, uh, That's approximately? right. Okay, yeah. 2,600 kids um, who have been affected by this in Flint. Um, and you may have seen uh, reports, it was reported in the New York Times, uh, that there was a settlement and you were the lead counsel on this thing. So That's right. could you talk a little bit about how you came to that sort of negotiated conclusion? And is it even a conclusion? Is, is something going to happen afterwards? Um, because I've got a bunch of questions about the criminal aspects of this as well. So I'll start with the, the end. Um, it's not over. Okay. Uh, the, the settlement that you referenced is with the state of Michigan and its various tentacles. So the Michigan Department of Environmental Quality, the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services, any of the employees associated with the state and the state itself and its entities, uh, subsidiary, so to speak, the settlement is for them. And the litigation has been against not just the state of Michigan, but it's also against the city of Flint. The city is not settling yet. It's against three different private engineering companies who are not settling, at least as of yet. There are some cases against uh, a hospital or two in Flint for the very, you know, the deaths, the Legionella deaths that you described in, in the question. So part one is all those kids that I represent, I still represent. The Environmental Protection Agency, by the way, is also a defendant in many Oh, so the cases. federal government. The federal government. Okay. So this is a, I mean, it's a $600 million settlement with the state of Michigan, which is, you know, it's a lot of money, obviously, and it, it's going to make, I think, a big impact on the community. But at the same time, it's just a slice of what I think is really going to come to the community because it's just a slice of the liability. It's just a slice of who did something wrong. I mean, this is a situation where, like, there's a bear in the woods and 40 people shot guns at it. And we know that the bear got hit and the bear died. But, you know, it's not sure which of the 40 bullets that hit it is the one that killed it. But we know that they all shot the bear. And so the state of Michigan is, you know, it's one shooter and there's other shooters out there. In terms of how the settlement came to be, I mean, it it didn't happen overnight. We've been we've been ordered by the court to mediate for more than two years. The media reports say 18 months, but that's that's undercounting uh, how long it's really been. The mediators in the case were, you know, for any like political junkies out there, former Senator Carl Levin from the state of Michigan, mm -hmm. who's like a very, you know, a very respected and, and kind of legendary senator from the state. He was appointed, as was a former chief judge from Detroit named Pam Harwood. And the two of them got together and they put us in a room for two years and, you know, throwing bricks and kicking shins and all of that. Um we came to this conclusion, but in between, I mean, there's some really funky stories about, it. I mean, we started out mediating with a Republican administration, Governor Snyder, who many people blame for the crisis, was still the chief executive for the state when mediation started and a defendant in the cases. Fast forward to, you know, 2018, most people remember the midterms, but there were also a number of gubernatorial races that flipped parties. And one of them was in the state of Michigan, where Gretchen Whitmer, who was just on, you know, uh, nominee Biden's shortlist for vice president, her administration came in and we began negotiating or continued our negotiation with the state, but now through a totally different party with a different perspective. So it, it didn't happen overnight. Um, I attribute a lot of the 
success to the fact that it was an administration that didn't really have to take responsibility for the crisis because they none of them were in power at the time. And it's much easier, I think, sometimes to like clean up a really bad mess in a house that you didn't make, even though now you own the house, than if it was the mess that you made. And so it, it didn't happen quickly, but through a lot of intense negotiations, it finally came to be. Okay. So so in terms of like the transfer of power from the Republicans to the Democrats, um, you know, one thing that often is the case with certainly the federal government is that they have a, you know, a vocal defense of their of their state or, or the government just because it's, you know, it's in their interest, irrespective of, of party, right? Um, so did you did you find uh, that the that there was a, a, a a change in tone or approach with the, the change in party that were they more accommodating um, and more willing to sort of come to the table um, or were they still kind of hard nosed and of course they don't want to let those dollars go. So the first the first thing I should note or correct myself on is even though it was a Republican governor transferring power to a Democratic governor, it was also a Republican legislature maintaining for its power. So despite the fact that the governor was from a different party, the, the legislature didn't change. And anytime you're getting money from a state or a state entity, there has to be some type of appropriation, which means legislative approval. So this became a bipartisan mm. agreement on the side of the state because it required the Democratic governor to go to a Republican legislature and sort of convince each other that whatever this deal was, was the right thing to do. More to your point, I definitely sensed the change in tone. We, we were actually negotiating with the same lawyers for the first governor as we were for the second governor. The lawyers stayed the same, but the executive changed. And so the tone of the lawyers changed. I mean, hmm. when we were negotiating with Governor Snyder, the amount of money that was ever talked about, which none of us would have even considered really taking, was a third, if not a quarter of what ultimately the settlement was. And it's not because they were playing a game of chicken. It was because they were genuinely not going to pay the type of money that I think ultimately was paid. So I do think that there was, um, I do think that Governor Whitmer was more inclined to resolve this in a meaningful way. You know, whether her reasons were because she really felt like it was the right thing to do or because she wanted to clear the deck of some of the riffraff that was on her boat, you know, I, I guess I can never get in her head. I, I hope that it's more of the former than the latter. You know, I, I think that anybody that's read about the Flint water crisis, even if only 60 to 70 percent of what you read is true or 30 to 40 percent of it is true, nobody will dispute that kids who drink water that has lead in it are not going to be harmed. And so one of the best products in this settlement is the fact that 80% of all the money is going to kids who are who were under the age of 18 at the time of the crisis. And more importantly, 65% of the money is going to kids who were under the age who were six years old or younger at the time of the crisis. And so, you know, I, I actually I, I wrote an op ed that nobody really cares about, but it's it's coming out today. And the only reason I mention it is because one of the things that's just struck me continuously day after day that I mentioned in this thing I wrote one night in the middle of the night was when politicians put their own kind of crap aside and if they just ask the question, you know, what decision will be best for kids? Like if the only decision you make in politics is what decision that I make will will be best for children. 
not Republican children, not Democratic children, not socialist children, not communist, just what's the best decision for kids? I think more times than not, the answer you get will be a good answer for everybody, despite party. And so what ultimately happened in this, and I, I think that where my value was, because I represent so many kids and not, not really adults, but kids, I just kept saying, like, just think about the kids, like, forget everybody else, you know, they're mad that people who have rashes think they should get a million dollars. The, they're mad that people who can't prove that their pipes were hurt want some money to fix their pipes. And I just kept saying, forget all that. Just, you know, if this were your kid, you know, if, 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 if this was the data and this was your kid, what would you do there? And I think ultimately the kids kind of won out and, and everything that came with it was collateral to the kids, but it was, it was really a focus on children. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. I think that's that's a good uh, a, a sort of universal moral yardstick that you know everybody should not find controversial. Um, that's a good that's a good strategy too, to to convince some minds, right? Um, um, Tony, you want to jump in here? Yeah, a couple questions. One: Can people in Flint drink the water today? They don't think they can. Um, and this will be controversial for my clients that potentially hear this, but they can. Um, you know, in, in October of 2015, so we're almost five years to the point, October 2015, the governor made the decision to insist that the water be switched back to the Lake Huron water that you referenced in, in the opening. And even though the pipes may have been corroded over time when good water that's treated flows through bad pipes there's a coating that should develop in the pipes that make it safe again to, to use it doesn't mean that ultimately they won't need to be replaced because all pipes over time and and our entire country's infrastructure probably needs to be replaced but the short answer is yes people should be able to drink their water now um did you it's a settlement but was there you know it, it is there going to be a trial do you think like yes. will you okay so there will be a trial. Uh, well, I mean, it's out of my hands because like I'm on a train and the train's going down the track and ultimately the last stop is a trial or one of the last stops is a trial. I don't have brakes. I don't, you know, I, I can't stop it. I'm not the one with the money. And so either someone has to convince me to dismiss all my cases, which obviously isn't gonna happen. That's one way to stop the train. Somebody has to pay enough money for the cases to be resolved and have nobody left to try the case against again, try the case against. And I don't really see that happening right now. Or there needs to be a trial. And so the judge in federal court has scheduled what are referred to as bellwether trials. They're kind of like exemplar trials that, that sort of set a standard for what to expect in trials to come. And we started out with like 150 bellwether cases for kids that were six and under. That got narrowed down to 100, then the 50, then the 30, then the 14. And just this past week, they're now narrowed down to what will be four cases that will be tried, likely on June 1st, beginning June 1st, 2021. And so we've been preparing for those trials for, I mean, since the beginning, but in earnest for the last four months. I mean, I've taken more than 50 depositions via Zoom since the pandemic started, all in preparation for this trial. So yes, there there will and likely should be a trial unless you know other folks step up to the table in the same way the state did, which I just from my experience in dealing with them, I don't really see happening. So those four trials, those are four specific families or, is, or, or will those trials represent still? It is four specific children 
who Got were it. all, not even their families. They may have parents who were injured. They may have property damage claims. They may have their own personal injury claims as adults. But this court very, in the same way that I was kind of advocating during the mediation for the kids, I think the judge, the court recognized that the most, the most vulnerable to injury and the most susceptible and likely the most injured are the kids and especially kids that are six and under. And so she made it a point to say the first cases that are getting tried are going to be kids that were six and under. And so we'll have four at the same time, four different children unrelated to one another, other than by the fact that they all lived in Flint, drank the water in Flint and were likely poisoned by the water in Flint. And that trial will likely last if it starts June 1st. My guess is it'll go through the entire summer and maybe conclude by, you know, by Labor Day. Um, And I don't know if you can tell us, but is there, you know, with with one of these four families, is there a specific physical damage that the jurors would see like or is this a they definitely drank it um you know like what is the worst one of the worst cases or some of the bad cases you've seen like what's happened so really what happens to kids is they they're brain damaged but not in a way where you would see them and they appear to have you know they don't they don't appear to be retarded it's it's not like the kind of brain damage where it's physically visible it's cognitive in nature and so it's it's like a forest fire that kind of runs through your brain and you can't you can't unburn the pieces that get burned and each of those pieces because kids that age are still having brain development each of those pieces it's it's not like it's not like the brain was formed and then it's getting ruined it's like the brain doesn't get formed the way that it's supposed to because a forest fire has run through it before it's actually been able to. And so what the result of that is, is you have kids who are, they're not able to reach their potential. And so they, they suffer from cognitive deficits where it's, it's, it's worse than ADHD because ADHD, there may be some, some way to appropriately treat it. Kids who are lead poisoned, they can get extra help. They can be given accommodations where they get more time. But on the whole, they're far more likely to not graduate. They're far less likely to graduate from high school or college. They're far more likely to be left behind at least one year in school, which means that and they're and they're far more likely to do worse in those classes that they're left behind in than the kids who are younger than them. And so you have kids who are 12 or 13 who are now in classes with kids who are 11. They're going through puberty before the kids that are younger than them. So their voice is changing. They've got a little bit of a mustache. Or if, if they're a woman, you know, a young girl, they're going through physical changes. But they're taking far more time on exams to get results that are far worse than the kids who are younger than them, which creates not only educational issues and an inability to potentially um, reach their educational milestones, let alone potential, but imagine what it would be like to be that kid and the anger that comes with it, the frustration, the inability to comprehend why you're not clicking on all cylinders because you've never known yourself to be able to because this happened to you when you were so young that what your cylinders are are the cylinders you've always known you've had despite the fact that somehow inherently knowing that you probably had more that just aren't clicking. So it's not that one of these cases is worse than any other. But when you play it out over a kid's life, when you when you take a kid who would have able to potentially be an astrophysicist and instead they're just going to be a lawyer or someone who could have been a ma- in management at a at a retail store. Instead, they're you know, maybe they can't. And instead, they're just security. Or if you have somebody that that could have been a physician and instead, you know, maybe they're just a tech of some kind. 
it's not that these people won't have the ability to work. It's that their economic potential is severely diminished, regardless of what their potential was. The astrophysicist will not reach his potential, even though by some measures he's still very successful. The, the store manager will not reach her potential or his potential, even though on some level he can still be employed. And so we do an economic analysis using experts once we get past the analysis from physicians to make sure that A, there are cognitive deficits and B, they were caused by the lead, how do you measure that monetarily over time? Because fortunately or unfortunately, my job, the only thing I can do for people is get them money. And how do you tell a jury of 12 people, some of whom may never have made more than $30,000 themselves in a single year in their own lives, what this child's injury is worth when they don't look different, when they don't manifest physical deformities, when instead you've got to explain to them what's going on inside their cranium rather than them being able to see it and touch it with their own eyes and hands. I'm wondering, these bellwether trials, do they have broader, ram like the conclusions of those trials, will those have broader ramifications for these 2,600-odd other kids? They will, and that's the point. Right. Um, the, the goal is to figure out by way, listen, we... We may win them all, we may lose them all, we may win some or lose some, even though they'll all be in one trial. I think we'll win them all, and I'm not saying that to like put, puff my chest at, out. I mean, these are kids who are hurt. You know, everybody loves kids, and most people don't like big companies. So, you know, we're starting out as a favorite, not an underdog, and everybody knows about Flint. But notwithstanding that, there are issues that may arise over the course of a trial like this that none of us anticipated questions that jurors have or legal issues that no one really thought were going to occur so that you can a find out what those issues are to try and address them or avoid them or take them on you know head on before the next trial but in addition to that no matter who the jury finds responsible you may be able to get values a jury may be able to tell you we believe each of these cases is worth x amount of dollars and so whereas with the state of Michigan in a conference room somewhere day in and day out, we're mediating a, a big value trying to determine what that would look like for each additional kid, we're just spitballing. You know, we're, 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 I'm telling them what I think, they're telling me what they think, and we're trying to come up with a compromise based on factors that aren't necessarily just what a jury is gonna say the value is. But when you have 12 or 10 or eight people sitting in a jury box, and they're like, I think Jimmy's claim is worth $1.8 million. And there's 2,599 other Jimmy's, you know, for, for a company that has $400 million in insurance or $3 billion in assets, that's a different analysis than if the jury says, I think Jimmy's claim is worth 75 bucks and you should pay everybody 75 bucks. On the one hand, they'd be very inclined to say, all right, we'll pay everyone 75 bucks. We'll do the math. That's not too bad. It's X amount of dollars. But it's intended to serve as a foundational piece for everybody on both sides and for the court to understand values and issues. Okay. Um, so the criminal stuff. And I don't know how much you can talk about this, whether there's a conflict or anything like that, but... So I was just reading up a little bit about the new, um, I guess it's the, is it the AG? Yeah, it's, it's the new AG, right? The new attorney general. So it used to be this guy, Bill Shuett. Um, Shooty. Yeah. Shooty, Shooty, Bill Shooty. Um, and just flies off your mouth. That's you right, that, Shooty. Um, <laughs> and so he was a Republican. And he'd started this investigation, and it seemed like a fairly broad, far-reaching investigation that 
um, that had various crosshairs on significant figures in the government, including uh, Governor Snyder and certainly his um, uh, coterie. Um, but then a Democrat came in in January 2019, Dana Nessel, and I was this this made you know front page news, not front page news, but it made the New York Times when there was 15 people who were criminally indicted all the way up to involuntary manslaughter uh, for one person um, who was the the head of uh, the Department of Health and Human Services um, in in Michigan. So seven had already taken plea deals and then the Democratic AG decided to dismiss all cases. Um, And with the option of, you know, reopening them and basically saying that the the original investigation was tainted or incompetent or was not as far-reaching and deeply investigative as it should have been and therefore you know it would i don't know if it was like a strat it was it was kind of a calculation like we're not going to win these cases so we got to start over or and this is i was reading around the detroit free press and what they were saying is that there's some people notably the communications director for this ag who used to work for Snyder, um, who before becoming the communications uh, director for the new AG, said, you know, this is this is a, a witch hunt, and this is you know this is overreach by indicting these people, and then all of a sudden, lo and behold, these people are might get off. And to add insult to injury, the statute of limitations just expired this year. So I'm wondering, what is your take on all this? Yeah. So first off, I'm totally comfortable talking about it. I okay. don't feel like there's any conflict. Um, I'm obviously not involved directly in the criminal side because, again, I'm just the lawyer that tries to get money from my clients. But I've been, you know, I've worked with, um, on some level, both sets of prosecutors, uh, the prosecutors who were specially appointed by by Mr. Schutte, as well as the prosecutors who are now you know, I'm using air quotes with my fingers, pursuing the criminal charges. So it's a lot to unpack, but you need to start out with knowing that Bill Schuette ran for governor against Gretchen Whitmer, and he ran as a Republican. And much of the Flint water crisis was attributed to the fault of other Republicans. So I don't think anybody in Michigan on either side of the aisle will dispute the fact that Bill Schuette's motivation in prosecuting folks related to the Flint water crisis was in many ways to distinguish himself from and separate himself from those Republicans who were being uh, thought of as responsible for the crisis. He appointed a special prosecutor named Todd Flood, who was a private practicing attorney obviously a a Republican appointed by a Republican, but I got to know Todd really well over the course of his prosecution. And some of the things that he was able to accomplish, and people should know I am a flaming liberal. I mean, I am telling you, like, I would drop money from airplanes on poor people if I had enough of it, you know, I mean, within reason, you know, $5 bills maybe, but, you know, I, 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 so I don't, it's not that I'm sticking up for anybody from the other party because I'm partisan about it. Todd was able to successfully obtain a number of plea deals that you alluded to or directly said. But one of the things he did that I thought was unbelievable that I could not genuinely could not believe he accomplished was 
In Michigan, there's in criminal law, you go before a judge and you have to present enough evidence for that judge to find probable cause, essentially, to go forward toward a trial. And it's called binding a case over. So it goes from one judge to a higher seated judge. And that first judge has to find that, yes, there's enough evidence here to bind over that case for, for what is going to be the trial. He had a case against a guy named Nick Lyons, who was the head of the MDHHS, the Health and Human Services, and he charged him with involuntary manslaughter. At the time I read the charges, I thought he was batshit crazy for charging them. I could not believe that, you know, this is a guy probably making $100,000 at most a year, working in government, running an organization that's for the government. He definitely made some terrible decisions, may have lied about stuff, but, you know, killing people and being a terrible employee or, you know, I thought two different things. And Todd unbelievably convinced not just this judge, but the community and other lawyers that he actually could make a case and did and bound this case over. And he had more coming. And when the second administration came in, Dana Nessel, the AG who you referenced, and Governor Whitmer, who, who obviously we've talked about already, their decision to wipe the slate clean of all of that remains one of the most confounding and baffling decisions that I've ever experienced somewhat from the inside, You know, something I'm super close to. Um, for a few reasons. One, some of the heavy lifting had already been done. I mean, that was a Herculean feat to get that case bound over. Um, and so to just sort of give up on it was, was it, to this day, remains a mystery. And so trying to look at everything positively and, and thinking about it optimistically, if your desire is to then prosecute folks, but to do the investigation a little bit differently, you would have thought that by now there would have been charges brought against many of these folks, especially because, as you alluded to, there's at least an issue as to whether the statute of limitations has expired. Statutes of limitations have to have a starting point before they can have an ending point. And there's a dispute about what that starting point is, which necessarily creates a dispute about when the statute actually expires. But the fact that it's an issue at all should give every lawyer pause. You know, the, the one thing I never want to do is blow a statute of limitations for my client because that's like cardinal sin number one of being a lawyer. In this case, the attorney general's office, the client is the, you know, the people of the state of Michigan. And there's there's I don't I wouldn't call them rumors. I think they're they're better sourced than just rumors that there's the a likelihood that the governor, former governor Rick Snyder, may be charged with, you know, with something. Um, and what is that something? You know, if, if you genuinely feel that this was a criminal series of criminal acts that led to some bad things happening, would you rather prosecute someone that no one's ever heard of to the full extent of the law as Todd Flood did for involuntary manslaughter? or potentially bring kind of ceremonial charges against, I mean, he won't consider them ceremonial, but you know, charges against the former governor that could be in the range of like a very small misdemeanor that ultimately is nothing but a, you know, a, a scar on his wrist going forward. But for a guy like him, who's already been through this, who was kind of a rising star in the Republican party and had national aspirations, he's probably never gonna hold public office again just because of his association with if not participation in what became the water crisis to charge him with a misdemeanor it seems very political and for for me someone who you know i want i want democrats to win across the board i i you know i want 
social justice and I want climate change to, to be considered as a real thing supported by science. And I want politicians that are going to effectuate change that are for the good for all of the issues I care about. I still find it very disturbing that politics seem to have potentially gotten in the way of this criminal investigation on the front end by doing away with some very good work that was done by Republican predecessors and on the back end by seemingly not pursuing with the same vigor or at the same speed the same prosecutions that clearly were viable by way of or, or as evidenced by the bind over that occurred in Mr. Lyon's case and in the pleas that occurred in, in a handful of other cases. So I will never understand on the one hand in this case, politics kind of took a back seat to do the right thing for kids. Uh, we talked about a Republican legislature and a Democratic governor that ultimately got together and said, screw it, let's do the right thing. And then on the other hand, you have you know, a Democratic attorney general and her staff who at least at this moment don't really appear to be hot and heavy on pursuing criminal charges that are of a ton of substance. I could be, you know, we could hang up this call and, and shut down the podcast and in 20 minutes, perhaps on on the Detroit Free Press website or MLive or CNN, you're going to find some crazy charges that they brought. And, you know, God bless them for doing it. But from what I've seen over the course of the last 16 months or however long it's been that they've sort of had the power to do this, I just haven't seen as much emphasis or vigor or fight to prosecute as what I saw from the Republican-backed appointed uh, special counsel. Yeah, I mean, that's it's. I was astonished when I read that, right? I think many people probably were. But you would have thought it was the reverse. I mean, you would have yeah, thought that right. there was a Democratic prosecutor. And, I thought they and were, were going to throw the book at him, you know? Yes. I thought they'd come in and, 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 and go even further, um, but... And especially, and, and look, you're the lawyer, not, not, not me or Tony, but you would think it's a good sign in terms of like bellwethers that you already got seven plea deals, right? And you're like, seven people already yeah. pled out. You got another eight to go, mm -hmm. and then you drop everything. It doesn't make sense, just, just on the face of it. You know, there's so many layers of um, politics. When, when, when politics and the law collide, there are just so many layers to peel back if anybody ever really wants to understand it. I mean, there's issues that go to, you know, when Flint, when Flint decided to stop using Detroit water, their goal was to join a conglomerate called the KWA. This conglomerate was gonna produce good water, but it was gonna take a bunch of years for it to be up and running. And so in the interim, rather than staying with Detroit, Flint switched to the, to the Flint River. Everybody knows that. But what people don't know is that in order for Flint, which was this economically deprived, mismanaged city that had to have an emergency management put in place because they couldn't balance their own checkbook, in order for Flint to actually get on this conglomerate, it was going to cost like 80 or 90 million dollars. So it's like having having um, having your your relative who who can't afford to buy groceries because they just don't know how to balance their checkbook suddenly buying a Ferrari. And so how did that happen? Well, J.P. Morgan Chase issued hundreds of millions of dollars in bonds for for this this creation of, of this conglomerate. And so that folks like Flint could actually afford to take on debt in some form or fashion to pay for it. And then the question is, why? Why in the world would J.P. Morgan Chase issue bonds for a city to pay for something that's not yet created when the city 
is in this position in the first place because they suck at managing money. And who benefited from it? You know, why were there politicians that were local who had campaign coffers that were five times as large as what they had ever had before? And so the story, you know, if someone were to ever really, really, really go deep into the story, oftentimes in the media, what's reported is just like the best, biggest soundbite. And when it sticks, you keep saying it over and over again and you layer on top of it. The real story is trying to figure out the layers underneath it that are already there. And so part of part of what's fun for me in some of this is, you know, we're looking at that now as a potential case. You know, why would why the hell would you be offering bonds in this situation, especially when you know that Flint is going to switch to a river that can't be treated appropriately, appropriately unless there's like years of studies to determine how to properly treat it. So. The whole thing is very interesting. It's very sad to, to know that people sometimes are afterthoughts when business, politics, and money collide. You know, it's just sort of collateral damage to, to people's interests. And we're seeing that on a national level. We're seeing it on a local level. And Flint's been seeing it, you know, for the last six years. Yeah, I mean, that's like a, a lot of sedimentation, right? right. There's, yeah. there's, there's many levels. Well, let's this. pivot that yeah. quickly into um, you spend a lot of time in Flint in Michigan. Um, you're constantly talking to people from this place. What do you think about the upcoming election and Michigan, which is a super important swing state, which, you know, had gone to Bernie in the primary and then Trump in the general yeah. election. What do you think? Um, we ha we actually had on a congressman from a uh, former congressman of Pennsylvania and Pennsylvania is in the same boat. It's like, who the hell knows? Um, what do you think is going on in Michigan? And do you have an idea of where people politically are feeling? Yeah, I feel pretty confident. I was not confident um, in the last election. I was like one of the few people that yep. saw the 29% for Trump on 538.com and said, holy cow, that's more than I thought. And, you know, I don't want someone to shoot me, a you know, pull a trigger a hundred times and tell me there's 29 chances that someone's going to hit me with a bullet in the head. I actually, I feel a lot more confident in Michigan than I did four years ago. Um, I think in no small part because of COVID. Um, you know, Michigan was one of the hardest hit states initially in the country. And whether people like or don't like the governor, obviously there were there were rebellions and protests outside her office. But it's usually a minority of people that are that are screaming the loudest. And the majority of people are just kind of trying to make their way through life and don't have time to protest. I cannot imagine that in the largest cities in Michigan that. Trump that the president will get nearly the support that he did last time. I just think COVID has ravaged a number of states and communities within states. And in the same way, I was talking to somebody the other day, you know, when when the Supreme Court came down recently with its decision involving the workplace and bias against homosexuals. And Neil Gorsuch, who's you know a Trump appointee, ultra conservative, he wrote the opinion for the majority that you cannot discriminate against people because of their sexual orientation. Effectively, that's what the decision said. The reason I, I, I couldn't process it for a minute, and then I just kind of realized like we're at a point in our world, in our country at least, where every one of us, even though 20 years ago we may not have thought we knew someone who was gay or may not have even like realized we did, like everyone now, we all have someone we love that's gay. Like being gay is nothing. It's just we, every single person, including Neil Gorsuch and John Roberts has somebody in their life that they love that's gay. 
And so when a case comes before them that touches a piece of them that they love, it's a lot easier for them to sway from what you would expect is going to be their ultimate decision. I say that because when it comes to COVID in a much faster way and in a much more macro way, every community as this fire is burning across the country where people are being affected by COVID, where suddenly your neighbor is sick or in the hospital or dying. And it started out with New York and California and the Northeast. And so all of the, you know, all the farm folks were like, ah, you know, those liberals out there on the coast, they're all getting sick and none of us are. Well, you know, bad news, it's coming for you too. (laughs) And North Dakota, South Dakota, um, Kansas, Iowa, you know, those four states in the last 36 hours have the highest uptick in rates of anywhere in the country. I think people are starting to know people who were greatly affected by this. And they're asking themselves, why did this happen to my cousin? Or why did this happen to my neighbor? Or why did this happen to my uncle? And as much as the president may want to blame his his competitor for the presidency, you can't blame someone who's not president yet for a pandemic that's happening while you're president or to the response that you've had for the response that you've had or didn't have. So I see Michigan, it was the narrowest margin, you know, the last time that went for Trump and I would be, I don't know about Pennsylvania. I don't know about Florida. I don't know about Ohio. I don't know about North Carolina. I'm, you know, I'm not a statistician or a politician, but I'm on the ground in Michigan. And I felt this before COVID. I just felt like people were not, their lives were not better because of the president. I felt that. I felt it there. Whereas in 2016, when I was there, I was like, holy crap, these people are really, you know, these people are going to vote for Trump. Like, that, you know, people don't realize in this mid-America, folks are going to vote for Trump. Now COVID hit. So to pile on to the feeling that I had, I bet significant money that mattered to me that Michigan is not going to be the state that that carries the day for Trump. He's going to have to do something different because I, I just I can't imagine it's going to be Michigan. Yeah, and he doesn't get you know what we're not seeing in any of these polls about you know the Trump Biden uh, uh, pro- pro- projections is like there was a there's a real poll that needs to be done for just Hillary Clinton hatred, <laughs> which yeah. doesn't exist in this. I mean, I do like it. It's, it was very real. No, I mean, people I mean, rationally yeah. and unrationally just hated her. Sadly, um, yeah. sadly, sadly, Joe Biden is like the safest white old dude in for the sure. history of the world. And yeah. there are people there's no who, hatred for him. There's people who feel a license who may otherwise feel like they're constrained for voting for mm-hmm. someone besides Trump who I think in some really weird way, he may be the best candidate because I'm not talking about his politics or his personality or his age, but he, because of his, because of his age, because of this color of his skin in a moment in time where you would think it would slap in the face of what I'm about to say, he just gives license to a bunch of folks who I think don't have the palate to vote for someone more progressive, someone more liberal who otherwise may vote for Trump while simultaneously those of us who are the most progressive or the most liberal or however we see ourselves, they'd vote for a freaking tadpole if it, you know, if the tadpole was running. And so Biden's coming along at a time in places like Michigan where you may have, you know, old white guy or suburban housewife or, or whatever Trump wants to call those people who otherwise would never vote for a Democrat. Like Biden's like, ah, I could probably do that. You know, like he's, that's why Trump's trying to paint him in so many ways that no one's really ever been able to paint him for 30 years or 40 years in public public service. You know, you could say he says stupid stuff and you, you give him a microphone for more than 10 minutes. He may fumble something or say something just out of this world. 
But there's really been no criticism of him in the way that Trump's trying to paint him because he's been very consistent for 30 or 40 years. Yeah, I mean, that that argument can't stick on Biden because Trump says terrible things in from the beginning to an end of a sentence, right? right. So right. so the idea of like a ga- oh, he had a gaffe, oh, big you know, that that's not like really going to stick right now. One thing that that I wonder about is that what was been analyzed with regard to Michigan, Wisconsin, and so on in 2016 was not necessarily people like flipped, but people just didn't come out, mm-hmm. right? That that the vote mobilization itself. So I, I don't know. It's completely unscientific. But no, like ear to the a, ground. You're there. A, like, do really people important. feel like mob like like? ready to at least vote against something so there's so the big x factor in all this that none of us know about or none of us can predict is how does covid affect people's desire and ability to leave their homes and go out and vote and part and parcel with that how effective can this attempt to or what feels like an attempt to mess with the postal service you know mess with polling sites you know, make it very difficult for people to vote. When those two things converge together, how likely is it that these folks who would otherwise vote are going to vote? And that's an answer I don't know. However, I think that because COVID is one of the, you know, I lost a brother-in-law to COVID. I lost a 36-year-old, my oh sister's my husband, 36 years old. Oh my God, I'm so you know, sorry. And, and I, I don't that. say that. I don't say that for any pity or anything. I mean, you know, it, it happened, and and the reasons it happened are the reasons it happened. But I focus when I'm looking right now at an election on if this were to ever happen again, who would I want to respond to it and how? And more importantly, you know my brother-in-law had underlying factors you know he had comorbidities who would create the best policy policies to stop some of those comorbidities from occurring in the first place whether it has to do with factory farming or climate change or just how we eat or how we live or how we you know what is our public health narrative what are we telling people who have heart disease and diabetes and chronic illness you know, I am now a one issue. I'm not a one issue voter. I, I want people who are gay to have rights. I want, you know, I want folks to have health care. I want pe- I want my kids to live in a place where they can breathe the, the air. I, I want that for everybody's kids, even Republicans. But right now in this moment, I think people are going to vote based on how this pandemic has touched each of their lives. And I think it has touched their lives. And I think as it gets closer to the election, unfortunately for the president, not fortunately even though it may be getting better on the whole nationally, it's starting to hit in places where you would not have expected people to be as affected by it. And therefore, maybe they're changing their minds in some form or fashion. You know, Iowa is not a swing state, but Iowa is getting ravaged right now with COVID. And how does that affect the way people look at it? So I think people will come out. I just believe well, I, well, one response in Iowa is that Joni Ernst says they're miscounting the COVID cases, right? Anytime anything's being miscounted, that's like, you know, that's the Hail Mary. You know, I, as a Georgia Bulldog fan, I've seen enough Hail Marys, though, to know that they normally don't work out. So. <laughs> All right. We've gone a long time, which yeah. I expected. I expected whenever we have Corey. Well, this is good, though. We can leave it. We'll, 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 do, we'll, we'll leave it one last question. Best lawyer movie of all time. Mm, a few good men. 
I, I just, uh, you know, the scene with Nicholson, I think Nicholson's in that movie for like nine minutes. Uh, but yeah, just the scene in, in Cuba, uh, where, where he, he, uh, he gives Dan, he gives Mr. Caffey a, a lecture on etiquette and respect. And then just his just brazen don't give a shit in this when he's admitting I had everybody killed and yeah. I'll kill you too and your mother. <laughs> I mean, it's, you know, I, I don't remember a ton of stuff, but I could do the entire, you know, yeah, yeah. Want answers. <laughs> so I, you know, I, I actually, I don't know if I ever told you all the story or if you care for your podcast, but when I was graduate, when I graduated from high school, I traveled for a year before I went to college and I did community service projects. I got really lucky to, to participate in this thing, but I was in Los Angeles and I would stay with these host families. And this, uh, this family asked me if there's anything in advance, is there anything you'd like to do while you're in LA? And I said, I'd love to go see a Lakers game. You know, Magic Johnson had retired 14 months earlier because of HIV, the Lakers kind of sucked. Mm -hmm. And the week before I got to LA, Magic Johnson announced he was coming back. And the first game that he played was right. the game that they had gotten me tickets for, probably for 20 bucks sitting courtside for this game against the Utah Jazz in LA. So I get into the, to the arena. I have no idea that the seats are so good. And they, you know, y'all are fancy people. You know, I, I bet, I bet that Tony sat courtside a million times, but I'm walking <laughs> down, I'm being, I'm being brought down the stairs by this usher and we keep going down and down and down. And I'm sitting courtside. I'm sitting right across from Jack Nicholson. who's like my hero. And I'm watching magic Johnson. It's amazing. And like in the third quarter, I got to pee. I got to pee like it's nobody's business. So I, I said to the usher guys, like, where do I go pee in these seats? He's like, follow me. And he takes me through this tunnel. This is at the LA Forum. This is before the Staples Center. Mm -hmm. And I get in this tunnel and there's like two security guards standing outside the bathroom. And I'm like, this is really weird. So he says, go ahead in. I showed him like my ticket stub. And I'm sitting there and I'm peeing. And I look to my left and I'm <laughs> peeing next to Jack. And so here I am at the LA forum, me and Jack Nicholson, just peeing like two guys together. I'm like 17 years old and just hyped up, you know, oh my God, I want to talk to him. But you know, there's like a guy code. You don't talk to some stranger while you're peeing. So I'm like trying to time it perfectly so that like we can end our peeing at the same time. Maybe we could wash up together. And so I stop peeing, he stops peeing and he's wearing his sunglasses. And I, I, I say, hey, Mr. Nicholson, how are you doing? And he just flips his sunglasses up. I could smell the booze, like, mm -hmm. you know, just coming off of his breath. And he just looks down at me and he says, got to get back to the game, son, the whole game. And he flips his sunglasses down and walked out of the bathroom. It's like the best moment of my life. I just I love that freaking Flint water crisis. I can't stop thinking about peeing next to Jack. <laughs> Well, I would make a case, which we'll do some other time, for my cousin Vinny being the best lawyer movie of all time. <laughs> I almost, I almost said it. That, yeah. that scene with Marissa Tomei. Come on, is, yeah, it's the best. I had a teacher in, in law school that made us watch that scene. There's, a, there's, um, there's a lot packed in there that's actually really good for young lawyers. But really, that was that was an incredible movie. Yeah. Well, Corey, as always, uh, we've gone over our time, but we could do that with you pretty easily. And, and thanks for all the, the hard work you're doing. And I hope I hope you get tons of money for the yeah. kids. Bring on these <laughs> yeah. cases. I hope more, they lock people more up. Cases. Keep, and keep I, them going. I, uh, I, I welcome the day where Amit's back in Brooklyn for a minute from Vermont visiting his his relatives. And, and Tony, you are too. And I'm there because I heard y'all are. And we can sit somewhere outside 
and have a drink, you know, that. close to each other and just kind of take in what we remember Brooklyn as and, yes. and hope that it comes back. Indeed. Corey, good having you, man. Thanks, guys. By the way, people, you can listen. What you should do is listen to the Corey interview we did two years ago. Yeah. When this was like in the early stages. Yeah. This, this was like 2016. It was yeah. 2016. Four so years it ago. It was four years ago. Yeah. And it, that was when we had just met Corey and he was kind of really in the early stages of gathering. You know, he hadn't had building the case. Building the case. So yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna listen to it too. It'd be really interesting, and now to kind of almost come full circle. But yeah, yeah. My advice to uh, all the people in Michigan is, you're gonna want to settle with Corey. I just uh, I don't think it's gonna work out well for (laughs) you. That guy's if that guy's in a suit in front of a jury of twelve, I'm gonna put my money on Corey and the case. I think so. I think so. Um, it makes sense that this case was decided the way, or or not even a case. You didn't even have yeah. to go to trial for this no. one. <laughs> yeah, like like you you knew you were poisoning kids. Like yep. just give them the money. Yeah, just pay yeah. up. We've yep. paid way worse things than that before. So come on. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Anyway, all right, man. Well, I guess we'll see you next week. Yeah, next week. Um, we've got a we're packed. Great, we're packed. We got, we got, we got a election. great guest coming up on. So we're you know talking about what's going to happen with the election and the turnout mm-hmm. and so on. But uh, one of our upcoming guests is going to talk about what happens if there is a turnout and there's an, a conclusion and Trump will not leave. Yeah. And that yeah. guest is Trump himself, everybody. <laughs> Could you imagine? Oh my God. I'd love to get him on never happening, but that'd be amazing. That would be. Hey, we have insane. like 10 people that listen to us. Do you want to come on? <laughs> would you have him on? Absolutely. Would you go hard or would you throw a soft? Oh my questions? God, I'd go so hard. He'd be off in two seconds. <laughs> he would walk off. Yeah. So you'd let me ask questions first. Yeah. I would let you, you know, like, like butter do you up eat a little bit. Two burgers in bed. Right. Or right. like, do you go fries first? Did, did McDonald's tell you what the special sauce is? Oh my God. All right. Well, we'll see you guys next week. Uh, no Politics at the Dinner Table is produced by Amit Prakash. Um, check us out on pretty much any platform you listen to um uh podcast but but also like our instagram and facebook page that's um, right check our website out buy a t-shirt for christ's right. sakes come on That's guys right. there's a few left let's get them <laughs>